we return to the powerful healing ministry of Jesus. All throughout chapter 8 and chapter 9, we've seen the Lord put His authority on display by exerting His lordship, His power, His might over various aspects of creation. Back in chapter 8, if you remember back in chapter 8, Jesus heals the leper of his illness. He follows that by healing the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. Then he calms the raging sea, demonstrating his authority over nature. Then he casts out a legion of demons, exerting authority over the supernatural realm. Then in chapter 9, not only does Jesus heal the paralytic, but he also pronounces his sins to be forgiven, something only God can do. And now as we turn to Matthew 9, verses 18 to 26, we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrate his power over impurity and even over death. And as I considered the text this week, I was really struck by the notion that we are constantly dealing with sinfulness and suffering. And it just seems as though, even in terms of ministry-wise, I keep on getting more phone calls, more emails, more concern, more prayer requests. And there are different seasons in ministry. Some seasons feel more heavy. Some seasons feel more light. And I remember I, I, this week I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and I just, boy, it just feels like it's just heavy right now sometimes. For, for some people, not everybody, but for some people. And he made some kind of a comment. He says, well, there's always sinfulness and there's always suffering. And I was like... That's pretty much true. That's right. This is always our plight as people. We always have to endure, whether it's some kind of calamity or suffering or something that's going on in our life, or even if things seem to be going well externally, there's always the sinful nature, the, the flesh within us that is hijacking us at every twist and turn. So it's sort of, it actually was a comforting thing to recognize that this is the reality that we're living in, but our, our God is greater than this. With regards to sinfulness, the Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked. We feel that, don't we? If pastoral ministry has taught me anything, it's the stark reality of the sinfulness of sin. First, of my own sin, and then the sinfulness of other people. It is the cancerous enemy that is stalking us and will continue to stalk us until the day that we're dead. But it is the entrance of sin into the world through the fall of Adam and Eve that has sullied the goodness of creation The arrival of sin, sin is what brings despair. Sin is what brings disease and death into the world. And while we suffer, sometimes we suffer uh, through no fault of our own, we ought to be reminded that our sinfulness is all part and parcel of the realm and the reason for the suffering in the first place. Let me just give you an example. When a child gets sick or even dies, people oftentimes want to... uh, sort of lash out at the Lord and get angry because it seems to be an unjust or an unloving thing that a child would get sick or die. And people will say things like, well, they didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve that, that terrible thing to happen to them. And humanly speaking, that is true. Humanly speaking, a child could be completely innocent of committing sins outwardly. Again, not, not sinless in terms of their nature, but innocent in terms of the, commit, the commission of sins. But in the economy of God, we're talking about something altogether different. The world system, which we're all a part of, is the system that sets itself up against God. And while each person might suffer, again, due to no fault of their own, when you get a sickness of some kind, oftentimes it is not something that you've done. 
Sometimes you might get sick or get hurt because of something you've done, but generally speaking, when we go through physical afflictions, it is usually something that seems passive to us. But the living reality is that the, the sinful effects of the fall is what brings about all of this. Anytime you suffer, anytime you go through turmoil, anytime that there is sin in your life, all of us are groaning with the creation, Romans 8 says. All of it is groaning together, longing for the return and the reconciliation of God the Father to the world. But here's the good news. God is healing and saving and restoring people. He's a God who delights to rescue people and bring them out of affliction. And even though our sinful hearts still make us enemies of God, He redeems His enemies. He justifies the ungodly. And He adopts us as sons and daughters to Himself. Today's text, we're going to explore something of that. And so if you haven't already turned to Matthew 9, please go to Matthew 9, again, verses 18 to 26. The scene is this event of the Pharisees and the disciples of John asking Jesus lots of questions about his social engagement. He's having dinner with sinners and tax collectors, something that's a faux pas that's really detestable in that culture. Why would you eat with a bunch of sinful people? You're going to sully yourself if you do so eating dinner with these people, and furthermore, he's even refusing to fast, or even his disciples to fast. And the disciples of John ask him, why, why are you not fasting? How come you're not doing these religious things that we're doing? But in the middle of the discussion, and Jesus answers all of these questions aptly, but in the middle of the discussion, a man barges into the scene. And we're going to read about this this morning. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18. While he, Jesus, was saying these things to them, A synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be well. And Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the official's house, he saw and saw the flute players in the crowd in a noisy disorder. He said, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. Now, this account appears also in Mark chapter 5. And Luke chapter 8. And if you know this story, if you're familiar with the account, it feels as though Matthew is missing some stuff. There's a lot more that happens in this account. And really, uh, Matthew's account is about half as long as Luke's account and only about a third of the length of Mark's account. So again, all three writers are writing the same events, just including different details. Matthew's purpose is certainly not the same as Mark and Luke here, but what he includes in his narrative here, his retelling, is enough for the purpose of his gospel. Again, all three gospels record this happening in chronological order, and so we're going to draw a little bit from other places in the Bible this morning to fill this out. But really, we see this account split into three main parts. If you notice, there's kind of a a chronology, and it kind of breaks into pieces very easily. So first, we're going to look at the ruler's plea, the ruler's plea. And the second thing we're going to look at is the woman's plight. And lastly, we'll see the Lord's power. So as we kind of break this into three, three sections here, I want to look first at this, this man, this ruler, and his plea to Jesus. Again, verse 18, while Jesus was saying these things to them, 
A synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. It was not uncommon for people to to come and fall down at Jesus' feet and ask him for help. Once you realize who Jesus was in terms of his abilities, you wanted to get something from him, and people came and prostrated themselves before him all the time, just in desperation, asking for help. But this arrival would have been jarring for different reasons. The man who approached Jesus is called, in the original text, a ruler. A ruler. In the Greek text, but the the audience would have recognized that this ruler, this is not a Roman ruler, this is not a Roman official. This is a Jewish official. He's a Jewish ruler, a Jewish leader. The Greek word is archon, ruler or chief. However, in Mark's account, if you were to look at Matthew and Mark together and look at the Greek, Mark uses a different word. Archisynagogos, a synagogue ruler. So not just any old ruler, a synagogue, a religious ruler. In fact, he was the chief ruler over the entire, the, all of the worship practices in the local synagogue. And so any Jew in Capernaum who worshipped at the synagogue would have known this man. And he would have been in the highest ranking order. He was the highest ranking official in the entire town. So Matthew does not name him, but Mark and Luke do. And we know that his name is Jairus. Jairus is the synagogue official in town. And he comes to Jesus and he's in desperation. Now this is in contrasting of the the self-righteous Pharisees who are berating Jesus for eating with sinners and tax collectors. The guy who runs their synagogue shows up and falls down on his face. And he barges in and he's prostrate before the Lord. Matthew uses the Greek word, Proskuneo, which could be translated paid homage or respect or reverence. It, com- it sometimes is translated worship, and so some commentators have said, oh, he falls down, he's worshiping God, or he's worshiping Jesus. Some commentators, however, don't think that's exactly what he was doing, but rather it's just a, a sign of respect. He falls down before Jesus because he's asking him in desperation for his help. Again, most scholars don't believe that he was worshiping, but he does fall down at his feet, Mark says. Why is he there? Why does he burst into the scene and fall down at the feet of Jesus? Well, he tells him, my daughter has just died. Now, Mark and Luke both record that she was dying or at the point of death. But we, when we read all the accounts together, we realize that there is actually a progression in the story. Um, that there was some lag time in the event. According to Mark, Jairus first appears to Jesus and tells him that his, father is, his daughter is almost gone. She's dying. She's at the point of death. But while he's there, his messengers come and tell him, no, I'm sorry, in fact, she's already passed. In the time that you've spent here asking Jesus to come and heal her from sickness, she's actually gone now. Matthew merely is picking up the event at this point, that she has now died. However, grief is intensified when we read that Luke records that this was his only daughter. Luke tells us it's his only daughter. He also tells us that she was 12 years old. Just approaching womanhood, and really death has robbed her of experiencing all the joys that would come in her life. Jairus is no doubt devastated. However, he has heard of the miraculous works of Jesus, and he declares to him, he says, But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Now, Jesus never told him how all of this works. Jairus doesn't understand that Jesus is God. He doesn't understand how his power works, how his deity works with his humanity. This isn't a theological thing. 
Jairus only knows that Jesus is able to do things that nobody else can do. And so he comes and he prostrates himself before Jesus and he says, if you just touch her, she'll get better. She'll come back to life. His faith is strong. All he knows is that my little girl is dead, but you can make her well. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 19. This is the most understated thing. I love when you read Scripture and it's understated, but you know that there's a power-packed punch behind the verse. Verse 19, Jesus got up. He didn't hesitate. He got up and he began to follow him, and so did his disciples. Jesus doesn't ask him questions. He doesn't get into a theological discussion. He doesn't correct his theology and say, well, technically speaking, he doesn't do any of that. He just gets up and he follows him. He's headed to his house. Now, certainly, we know from the centurion's servant, that instance, Jesus could have healed her from afar. He could have said, you know what? Tell you what, Jairus, she's already, she's already healed. I've just done it. He doesn't do that, though. There's something different about this. Jesus, he's going to get up and he's going to go to his house. He's going to minister him directly. There's something about being with a person when you do ministry. Jesus models this for us. He goes and he's going to spend time with this family, as we're going to see. But as he's making his way, as he's getting up to go, To this man's house, he is stopped by someone else. Number two, the woman's plight. The woman's plight. I've always been struck when I read this account in the gospel narratives, uh, just to kind of how jarring and how disjointed this is. As a storyteller, this is not very good storytelling. If I were to make this up and write this from scratch, this is probably not what I would do. I would say, well, he did this and then he did that. But here, this is real life. Jesus is going to this man's house and then this crowd is with him and someone else gets in the way and stops him and this is how things go. That's what we read in the Gospels is is the account of real life. This is real events happening here. He's traveling to the house. Mark and Luke record that a great multitude is following him and even pressing in on him. If anybody's ever been in a crowd before, you go to a subway station that's loaded and packed and there's just, there's no room to breathe, right? You're on top of each other. That's the, what we see here. As he's walking, he's shoulder to shoulder with this crowd of people. They're going with him to Jairus' house. They're bumping into him. They're possibly getting to a point where they might be knocking him almost over. There's a lot of people and all, all these people around him. And one woman, she makes her way through this crowd and heads toward him. Look at verse 20. A woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. Now, at first read, you might miss the gravity of this. The woman who comes to Jesus to touch him, she has a condition that causes her to experience a hemorrhage. In other words, she bleeds constantly. If we were to examine this, we really find that she's actually got two problems. Two problems. The first is physical. That makes pretty, it's pretty straightforward to us. The first is a physical problem. It's normal for a woman's body to cleanse itself regularly, but this woman has experienced this hemorrhage for 12 years. Her body has not stopped doing this. This would have posed a considerable challenge to her health. Now, someone in a condition like this, it might not necessarily be life-threatening. Sometimes it is, but it's certainly uncomfortable. She's certainly in misery with this condition for the decade and more that she's been going through it. Other times, however, this is a deadly thing. We don't know, however, what condition she has specifically, but we do know that this is a problem for her, but that's not the biggest problem. There's another issue. In Leviticus 15, we read about laws concerning purity. 
We read that if there are times when there are bodily fluids, it makes a person to be spiritually unclean. Again, I'm talking about Old Testament Levitical law. And in chapter 15 of Leviticus, verses 2 through 18, it gives specific rules and laws dealing with men and fluids and their impurity at those times. And then verses 19 to 33, it deals with women in these impurity uh, with fluids in their body in, in terms of like bleeding and things like that. It would render a woman to be spiritually unclean. For the women, their menstrual cycle would ceremonially render them unclean for seven days. This uncleanness would have affected many things, but above all, it rendered them unable to participate in worship at the temple. And so if you hit that certain period of time, you could not go to the temple and worship. Now, after seven days, she could be rendered clean again, and she could resume the practices of her religious life. However, if this condition is perpetual, and for this woman it is, this would have regarded her ceremonially unclean for as long as it persisted. Ergo, this woman has not been to temple and has not been able to come and worship God with the community of saints for 12 years. We've experienced in, the, in our country, in the Western world, uh, sort of a hindrance of worship. And some churches have not been open for over a year. Some believers have not been able to gather for worship in a year. And you feel it, don't you? Imagine being a woman who not only is afflicted, but has not been able to come and worship God with the people of God for 12 years. That's her. She has two problems. This woman has tried everything, however. Mark records this. She had endured much at the hands of many physicians, and she had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. She had gone to every doctor she could find. She'd gone to the temple. She'd gone to the priesthood. She'd gone to every, anybody and everybody who had some kind of a cure for this. She'd spent everything she had, and the problem only got worse. She comes to Jesus at this point. She's desperate. She's desperate. When I was in financial services, we read a whole bunch of stats about money and people's situations. The number one thing, the number one event in a person's life that causes bankruptcy is medical expenses. Number one, hands down. People will spend anything and everything to get better, and she had. And like Jairus, she hears about Jesus, and she wants to come and find him, so she tracks him down. She sees this mass of people. She's thinking, that's got to be Jesus in there somewhere. She makes her way through this crowd of people. Now, she no doubt felt a stigma of being ceremonially un unclean. And she didn't want to make a spectacle of herself. And so her plan was this. I'm going to sneak up behind Jesus, and I'm just going to touch his cloak, just his garment, just his outer garment. I'm going to touch this, and if I can touch this, it will make me clean. She says in verse 21, she was saying to herself, if I could only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, her effort is nothing short of superstition. Nothing in Scripture says that if you touch Jesus' clothes, that you'll be made well. That's not anything. That's not, that's not theologically accurate. There's nothing special about Jesus' coat. However, in her superstition, she has one thing right. She knows that Jesus is the one she has to go to. She doesn't know anything else. But all I know is that man, that man walking down the street, I know he can heal me. And so she goes to him, and she sneaks up behind him in this crowd of people, and she just touches his garment. Now, Matthew doesn't record what happens next, but Mark and Luke do. Mark 5.30, immediately, 
Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now you have to admit, this is mildly humorous. And the disciples were scratching their heads as well. He's traveling in this sort of Jewish mosh pit. There's people all over the place, touching him and grabbing him and pushing on him. And he has the gumption to ask, Who just touched me? Did someone just touch my clothes? And the disciples, they, they're doing the same thing. The answer is, well, everybody's just touched you, right? And that's how the disciples reason in Mark 5.31. The disciples turn and say to him, you see the multitude pressing on you and you say, who touched my garments? In fact, I think one of the gospel writers even records that it's Peter who kind of asks him the question. Master, have you, do you not see that there's people around you and you're worried about someone who touched you? They don't understand what's going on, obviously. But Jesus, he began scanning the crowd. And he's looking to find this person who has touched him. And it says here in the text that the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the truth. She came out of the crowd and she fell down before him. And she said, I I did. I was the one who touched you. What would he say? What's what's Jesus going to say to her? Is he going to be angry that she snuck in and stole healing for herself? Is is he going to be upset that she's getting in front of other people who are waiting in line to be healed or to to be ministered to? No. Matthew 9.22 records his response. Look at verse 22. Jesus turning and seeing her said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. I want you to notice his tenderness and his compassion here. In, back in chapter 9, verse 2, when he heals the paralytic, the first thing he says to him is, Son, son, take courage. He says, then your sins are forgiven. He says the same thing really here to her. He calls her daughter. Daughter. And then he says, take courage. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid. Take, take heart is really what the, the phrase means. It's going to be okay. He says, your faith has made you well. Notice he doesn't say that touching my clothes made you well. That's not what does it. It's not the superstition of that. But it's faith in the one who's wearing the cloak. Really, her faith was was on him. She was just too scared to get too close to him. But in that moment, her illness is healed. She's now not only healed and made well, but she's now ceremonially clean. But more importantly, now she's a daughter of the king. He pronounces her A daughter. Really, what this is, is this is her salvation. She's saved by God's grace through her faith. When he says, your faith has made you well, it's not that your faith is some kind of powerful weapon you can wield and do things with, contrary to popular belief about faith and the power of faith. No, it's faith in Jesus. He's the one who saves you, who makes you well. She is saved by God's grace through her faith in Christ. And so after healing this woman in the crowd... Jesus then turns and goes back on his journey and he makes his way to Jairus' house. We're going to see number three, the Lord's power. The Lord's power. Look at verse 23. When Jesus came to the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy order. Now, this is interesting. He arrives at this house. This is a funeral already underway. So they didn't waste any time. However long it takes from Jesus to go from where he was to this house, 
Now there's already funeral activities going on. Now, contrary, this might be difficult for us to understand because we're a Western culture. Uh, our grief practices are different than this. Uh, Jew- Jewish funerals, ancient Jewish funerals, were noisy and chaotic. With us, we go to the funeral home and it's very quiet, it's somber. We speak softly. There are tissues all over the place, right? It's a very quiet and somber thing. Families today, when they go to these funerals and they lose a loved one, it's, they try to hold it together. I've gone to funerals. I've gone to a lot of funerals. And you go to the person who is grieving the most, uh, the wife or the, the child or the husband or whoever, and they seem to be holding up pretty good, generally speaking. They hold it together. People kind of hold them together because they don't want to let it all out. That's very different than these kinds of funerals. Jewish funerals, they let it all out. It all comes out when they're grieving, when they're mourning. They would mourn, they would wail and cry and scream. This was intense. Intense. But the custom went like this. You would invite guests to mourn with you, and if there weren't enough guests, you would actually hire mourners to come to the funeral. You would hire people. In fact, it was customary. I was looking this up this week. Even for poor families, even for people who had nothing, it was customary to hire at least two flute players and one professional wailing woman. Not even kidding. They would hire people to come and mourn with them. And the underlying belief in this custom was that even if you were poor and even if you had no one else to come to the funeral, at least you wouldn't be grieving alone. You had somebody with you to grieve with you. Now, Jairus is a wealthy man. He's a high-ranking official. And so he likely had several instrumentalists and flutists. He had a whole choir of professional criers. So Matthew probably understates the scene when he says the crowd was in noisy disorder. I think when Jesus shows up, it was absolute chaos and pandemonium in this man's house. Now, that's very difficult because you have all these... Professional mourners, they're there just to cry on command because they've been paid. But you and your family and your spouse are there actually grieving the loss of your only daughter. Jesus is sensitive to this. He doesn't come, however, to mourn with this crowd. He sort of gives an agitated rebuke. And he tells them, leave, depart, all you people. All you professional mourners and wailers and whoever you are, just leave right now. He says, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. How do they respond? They laugh in his face. They laugh at him. Not because they thought he was funny, but because they thought he was being absurd. What are you talking about? This is my gig. I come to funerals and I cry. What are you talking about that she's only sleeping? That's the most foolish thing I've ever heard. But here's the thing. Jesus is not being absurd. He's not being absurd. Rather, his perspective on death is far different than ours. Far different. In fact, the Bible speaks often of death. Those who fall asleep in the Lord, that's, what the, that's the phrasing. Is they're sleeping. They're not actually dead. The word death is oftentimes, in Scripture, reserved for those who experience final death. Final death. But for those who die in Christ, it's really only a temporary loss, a temporary reality, as if one were only sleeping. Jesus speaks this way of Lazarus in John 11 
When he hears news that his friend who has died, he responds in John 11, 11, he says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus, who has fallen asleep, he says, but I go that I will awaken him out of sleep. Now we know from the text that Lazarus had been dead for four days. I love in the old King James when they say that when they're worried about rolling the stone away, someone responds and says, Lord, he stinketh. He's so far gone that his body's already going. He is dead. But Jesus says he's just sleeping. That's his perspective at this point. He travels to Bethany and he raises Lazarus from the dead. This is much of the same thing here with this girl. Jairus' daughter, she's dead by all earthly measure. No brain activity. No heartbeat. She's cold to the touch. She's gone by all earthly standards. Yet Jesus intends to resurrect her thus from her slumber. But he's not going to do it in front of this belligerent crowd. He's not going to do it in front of them. He's not going to put this on display and have them gawk at him and do all. I mean, if you can imagine these mourners now getting paid to cry and scream, what are they going to do when they actually see a a real miracle? They're going to lose their minds. He doesn't want that. Mark notes that Jesus puts all of them out of the house, all of them. And he only allows Jairus and his wife to come. And then he adds that Jesus also takes Peter and James and John. So just six people go back in the house. And then Jesus approaches the place where this girl is lying. And he takes her by her her cold hand. And he calls to her. Mark records his words Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, little girl, I say to you, rise. And the Bible says immediately, the little girl opened up her eyes and she got up, just like that. And Jairus and his wife, they're astounded. This is, this is joy mixed with amazement. They don't know what to think because they're so happy their, their daughter is back. But this, this defies human understanding. This defies logic. This defies everything that they understand to be true. Even though Jairus had asked him to come, now that it's actually taken place, she's actually alive, he doesn't know what to think. But I love this, and this is not recorded in Matthew's Gospel, but in the other Gospels. Jesus doesn't neglect her physical needs. Because immediately after he does that, Luke records that Jesus calls for them to bring her some food. He he has attention to detail. Because they're, they're... response is going to be to freak out and grab her and hug her. But Jesus says, hey guys, give her something to eat. She's been sleeping. And so they do. And upon this miracle, Mark records that Jesus gave strict orders that no one should know about this. Why? Why? Well, because Jesus is on the divine timetable. He's got things to do and he has a timeline to do it. And he's still doing many things privately and keeping a low profile. But wouldn't you know what Matthew records in verse 26? The news spread throughout all the land. Nobody could keep this a secret. This was too big. This wasn't just someone in the wilderness. This wasn't a demon-possessed guy living in a graveyard. This is the synagogue ruler in Capernaum whose only daughter had died and come back to life. This is huge. It would have been near impossible to keep this under wraps. But this account further illustrates the authority of Jesus over every single realm of the created order, including death. Again, chapter 8 and chapter 9, we've seen this progression of his authority, of his power, where Jesus, I mean, it's, nothing is beyond his abilities at this point, right? 
We, we haven't seen a single thing that he gets to and says, oh, this is too big for me. Even death, Christ is Lord over. For Jesus' death is powerless. It's as insignificant to him as a nap. Yet for us, it remains the true enemy, the last enemy. Death is always stalking us. And this brings us to a a common question, I believe one that's hotly debated. Does Jesus still resurrect people from the dead? I think we often struggle with accounts like this because we read the scriptures and we see what Jesus did. And we read the book of Acts and we see what the apostles did. And then we look at our experience today and there seems to be a disconnect. All throughout the Gospels and Acts we see sickness is healed. And I don't just mean someone with a cough or a cold. I'm talking about a person with debilitating diseases that have rendered them completely helpless. We see in in the Bible people have eyes restored and limbs growing back. People who have been paralyzed for 40 years who get up and run. Demons cast out and even the dead raised back to life. And the question is, well, what about today? What about today? While we wholeheartedly affirm that God is able to do whatever He desires to do, there's no such thing as putting God in a box. God is God, and transcendently so. God does whatever He wants to do. But the question is for us, does God still do this? Does He still work in this way in this age? The Bible clearly states in 1 Corinthians 13.8 that many of the miraculous gifts will cease. But the question for us is when. We don't know when. That's been a, a huge topic of discussion and debate. When you look at church history in the course of general, uh, general history, we see that there has been a cessation at least of some kind. And when you read all the papers and all the debates about whether or not gifts have continued or not continued, everybody across the spectrum has to acknowledge that there has been at least some kind of cessation. We don't see what's happening in the Gospels and in Acts happening in the same vigor that it happens uh, today. And we experience the harsh reality of that. People still get very sick. People still die. And while God does and will show mercy and heal some people, we don't generally, and at least not that I'm aware of, see resurrections today. And when I've said things like this before in other circles and everywhere, people will often say that, well, that's, that's because we're in America. In other countries, there's resurrections happening every single week. Places like Africa, they'll tell me. Well, in a couple of weeks, we're actually hosting a missionary from Africa who's going to come and deliver a message from this pulpit in a couple of weeks. We're going to see the nature of that ministry, and he's going to talk about what he has seen in Africa over the last couple of decades. And I'm encouraged, I'm excited. He's actually been here before as a guest, as a visitor. He's going to come back and share. I'm excited about it. I think you're going to be blessed by his visit. But I think it's important for us to not misunderstand what the Bible says or miss the significance of this account in Jesus' life and ministry. Because our message to people, even today, is not this. If you believe in Jesus, He will heal you of every sickness you have. That is not our message. Rather, because Jesus possesses all authority, all authority, By trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, he is able to heal the whole person, heart, mind, soul, and one day in the future, even your body as well. My friends, you and I will suffer. You and I will get sick. And the Bible teaches that all of us will die. 
This is a, a present reality for all people. And God does show mercy. He does help people. But that is not the focal point of our gospel. There is a bigger need, a bigger problem than just my sickness and just my discomfort. The biggest problem that I have and that you have is that I'm dead in my transgressions and sins apart from Jesus Christ. On my own, I have no way to get to heaven. I have no way to get to the Father. The sicknesses in this life pale in comparison to the judgment of God if I don't turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And so our message is to repent, to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And he will not only restore you to himself, but one day you will dance like on wings of eagles. And you'll be with him in heaven forever in a glorified body reconciled perfectly to the Father. After I graduated college, I got a job doing low-level management. And one of my employees was a girl named Brittany. Before long, I learned that she had a rare blood disease called paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinaria, which is PNH for short. It's a very rare illness, and I'm going to spare you all the details of what this is. But the condition that she had caused her body to reject its own blood, and she would hemorrhage daily. And she suffered for five years until this illness finally took her life at age 19. Before she passed, I visited her in the ICU. I, I lied to the doctors, and I told them I was her brother, so I could come see her. And as she lay there in tears, after having a dozen surgeries, she looked at me and she says, why is this happening to me? I was in my 20s. I didn't know the Lord. I had been to church as a kid, but I didn't understand the gospel. I didn't know about Jesus and his authority, his power, what he could do. I didn't understand his forgiveness. I didn't understand the gravity of sin. I didn't understand the gospel and her greatest need of salvation. And so as I looked at her suffering in her hospital bed, I said nothing. I didn't know what to say. And a few years later, when I became a Christian, I remembered back to my hospital visit. And in that moment, I heard a a voice in my heart saying, never again. Never again will you go and visit a dying person and not have the gospel. Never again. And I vowed that day. I wasn't even thinking about ministry. That was the farthest thing from my mind. All I knew is that I needed to know the gospel because you and I, my friends, we have this message of salvation that we can tell a person who's dying of a rare blood disease that they can have salvation, they can have forgiveness, and they can have new life in Christ. And even if their body goes in this life, they'll be with them forever. Now, what I couldn't have promised Brittany, I I pray that someone else reached her with the gospel. Because I couldn't have told her that I I promise you that you'll be healed because she wasn't healed. But I could have promised her that if she put her faith in Jesus Christ, she would have life forever. And my prayer for the last 20 years is that God used someone else to give that gospel. And I throw myself on the mercy of his sovereignty. But let me ask you, what would you say to a person on their deathbed? Do you have it? Do you have the gospel in your mind and in your heart? Do you understand the gravity of your own sin? 
and the sin of the world? Do you understand and comprehend the holiness and the righteousness of God? That he can't be in fellowship with sin. It's detestable to him. And do you understand that Jesus is God in human flesh? That he came to earth and lived a sinless and flawless life. And that he gave his life as a ransom to the Father. He died on the cross at Calvary to pay for sins. And when he was nailed, hands and feet with a crown of thorns on his head, that the sins, the sins that we bear, the sins that we commit, were nailed to his cross and were paid for by him. That all who would repent and believe, it doesn't matter what you've done, what your history is, your past, it does not make a difference to God. You turn and confess your sins to him, and they'll be taken away, and you'll be forgiven. And God then credits you. It's called imputation. He credits you with a righteousness that doesn't belong to you, that you haven't earned, that I haven't earned. And he wraps you with his cloak of righteousness. And when he dies and takes away your burden and the Father looks at you on judgment day, he does not see you in your sin. He sees you wrapped in the righteousness of his Son. And he calls you son and daughter. And he redeems you. And he saves you. And brings you home. My friends, that is the gospel. That is our message. And I would implore you, now, I have gone to God with this before, but I, I entreat you. Don't allow 20 years of former guilt to plague you. Do not miss an opportunity. That if there's someone there who's sick or hurting or dying, bring them the good news of Christ. Pray with them. Don't be cowardly. Don't be afraid. Share Christ with people because you don't know. You don't know how long you have. You don't know how long they have. But let me tell you, Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins and to grant eternal life to all who would repent and believe on Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that You are a merciful God. We know that You are a righteous God. And God, I know and we know that it is not us, up to us to save people. It is not my responsibility to save lost people. That is your responsibility because you say it's yours. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But God, in your plan of redemption, you use broken vessels like us to deliver this beautiful message to a dying world. And God, there are many times that we don't get it right. We forget, we misspeak, we stutter, we lose heart. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give your people courage and wisdom and understanding. That this would lead us into a desire to know the truth even more. To understand the gospel and to understand doctrine. And Father, if we don't, to join ourselves with other people who can help us and disciple us along the way to teach us how to live life as Christians. Lord, I pray that we would surrender ourselves under the authority of Christ to give the gospel and to trust in You 
that while you may not restore our bodies here on earth, while you may not resurrect the dead here and now, we know that you are the God of all healing and all resurrection, that one day you will bring all believers to yourself. Even Jesus Christ himself said, I came and gave my life for the sheep. And you do. You have given yourself for us. Something that we do not deserve. Something we didn't earn. But God, by your grace and by your mercy, you have extended this to us. And so I pray, Lord, as lights in the world, that we would shine our light so that other people would see our good works and see our lives in Christ and hear the good news from our lips and would not glorify us, but would glorify you. And so, God, I plead with you, glorify yourself through this church and through the message that we bring to a lost and dying world. Thank you for your love and for your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.